You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help as we open his word together. Lord, as we have sung, you still direct us by your spirit through your word. And I pray this morning, Lord, that that would be true in this place, in and with these people, in my heart in all of our hearts. Lord, I pray that your spirit would have full, complete reign of us as you do work on our hearts by your word. I pray that the truth would be clear. I pray that hearts would be tender and ready to receive, that ears would be opened, that eyes would be opened. And that we would see Christ. I am not sufficient for these things, but you are more than sufficient. So please, Lord, do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor read the text this morning, and I'm just going to read it once again just to begin us. But we're in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 21. This is the last of the Ten Commandments, or the Ten words, if you like. Um, We finished the Ten Commandments today, but we'll finish the series next week, Lord willing, and uh, round out the rest of the chapter and tie some things together. And uh, we get to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper next week as well, which will be a great close to this series. The word says in Deuteronomy 5, verse 21, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We've talked about how the last several uh, commandments here in the ten are really summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, each of them, we've talked about how there is positive aspects to each of the commandments, And we've talked about how obviously there's the negative side of you shall not, um, and then whatever the commandment may be, whether it be adultery, murder, um, stealing, or the last, uh, just before this, bearing false witness. And this is no different. There are some positive things that we will talk about uh, in and with this. But also, this one is different in a sense because the rest of them are uh, drawn out, at least the last few that we've done, are drawn out. Immediately as we read them, we think of an action. We think of murder as an action, adultery as an action, stealing, bearing false witness. Coveting is this um, thing that you can't really see in someone else. You only see it manifested through their actions. But if you're 
honest with yourself and um, careful enough to just do some inspection of your own heart and mind, you can perhaps see it in yourself. But it's very rare that anyone would ever say, that person is coveting something, because how would you tell that? Um, so it's an it's a, it's a under-the-surface sort of issue, but we've drawn out how each of these things, as Jesus uh, himself talks about in the Sermon on the Mount and in various other places, he talks about how there are things under the surface for each of these other commandments as well, not just the action in and of itself. And so in some way, the Tenth Commandment gets its way into the heart, gets its way into the things that lie beneath the surface of all the rest of the commandments, showing that God has always been, and even as Pastor read verse 29, God has always been concerned about the nature of our hearts. Um, We could be mistaken very badly to read the Ten Commandments and think that it's simply about actions. I've been trying to make that point over and over again. Because, yes, actions are important and we uh, need to understand what we should and should not do in those places, but we also need to understand that there are things that lead us to the actions that we partake in, and namely our hearts, as the Bible calls our hearts. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, each of these have uh, these commandments have proved to be interesting, just studies of, from my own personal uh, preparation and my own personal study. And some of them have required different paths to take to try to get to a place of coming before you and uh, doing more than just reading the, the commandment and praying. Um, and so what I did was I thought, I want to understand better what it means to covet. And so I did what all of you can do with a computer or if you have a concordance or something like that, you can look up what is the word, what is the Hebrew word for the word covet. And I did that and spent some time in, uh, I don't know, 20-some verses, which we'll touch on several of them this morning, but basically did a word study of understanding what is, what does covet mean? I, I think I know what it means, but what, is it, what does it mean? And uh, one of the ways that folks that are scholars in, in uh, biblical languages understand, how they come to understand what words mean is by understanding how they're used, and understanding how they're used in various places and in different contexts and with different surrounding ideas around them, and who's doing this particular thing and who's not doing this particular thing. And so this was very revealing to... Uh, do this, and so we're the, some of what we're going to do this morning is some fruit from that, but also just getting very practical on the very nature of coveting. But let's walk through the verse first and just understand what is being said, and then we'll dive into some other places throughout Scripture. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You remember as well. I said this each week, but you remember this as well. This is the second time that the Ten Commandments are being mentioned to the people of Israel. First time was in Exodus chapter 20, 40 years prior to this moment that we are at in Deuteronomy 5. And it was said from Mount Sinai, it was announced by Moses after uh, the Lord gave Moses these commandments, announced to the people, written in stone, and announced to them. Now we could go back and compare, and you don't have to turn back there, but you could uh, check this out later. There, it's been fascinating to do some comparison between what does Deuteronomy uh, explain? 
express the commandments as and what does Exodus express the commandments as. And there's just two slight differences between Deuteronomy 5, uh, 21 and Exodus 20, verse 17. And I'll just mention those because it helps to make the point of what's being said now. Because remember as well, as Moses is talking about the Ten Commandments to the Israelites here in Deuteronomy 5, 40 years later, to the next generation, he is reminding them that this is not just commandments for, uh, for their fathers and mothers, for the previous generation. This is for you, he's saying. These are the commandments that the Lord gave you. This is the covenant that the Lord made with you. This is about what you are doing in terms of uh, your obedience to the Lord, not just what did your parents do, because we know how that worked out for their parents. It didn't work out very well. And that's why they're still wandering around in the wilderness at this point. And so keeping all of that in mind is helpful to think about how things are phrased. The two things that I'll call out uh, that, to, to make to, to note the differences between the two verses are, number one, uh, in Deuteronomy 5, we have the uh, inclusion of his field. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field. That is not mentioned in Exodus 20. Well, I wonder why that's not mentioned in Exodus 20. Well, nobody's got any fields in Exodus 20 because they just came out of Egypt. They don't have anything um, to that point. Now, they may have these servants and male and female, ox, donkey, and so on, but they've not settled anywhere to the degree that they have a field. Now in Deuteronomy 5, it's possible that they've been uh, spending enough time where they do have a field, and so it's important, and Moses says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to the people of Israel now in the second generation, don't desire your neighbor's house and his field. So that's an insertion, and we can understand why that's added, because, as I said, Now they probably have fields, they have some land, uh, at least for a temporary time. The other interesting uh, change is that in Exodus 20, verse 17, the first thing that's mentioned is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. In Deuteronomy 5, 21, you can see that the first thing that's mentioned is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I could speculate on why this is, um, and I I think primarily it is uh, the, the time spent uh, at this point, uh, the, the, the time between the two uh, givings of the Ten Commandments, I think, are another helpful key to this. In Exodus 20, they're just getting houses. They're building tents. They're trying to set up and establish where they're going to live. And so the first thing they're going to say that, that the Lord says, is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You know, the Jones down the street got their tent built, you know, uh, you could imagine the wife saying to the, the husband, Henry, you're supposed to have your tent built. The Jones have the nice tent down the, down the, the, you know, the, the sand path here, uh, and we don't. And so that's it. In, in a sense, you can think about it just practically. That's where it begins. That's where they're all feeling the sense of, of desiring what the other people have that they don't have. And uh, he, so he begins with houses. Now they're a little bit more established, they're a little bit more settled, and he begins to turn uh, and put at primary at the primary place, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We could just make it more uh, plain for everyone. You should not covet your neighbor's spouse. Now, also, the third, the third difference in Deuteronomy 5 is uh, from Exodus 20, verse 17, is this. Uh, there's two words used uh, for covet in this, uh, in this verse. Uh, the beginning of verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then the next sentence, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Some of your translations have those flipped. But the actual word for covet that is used in Exodus 20 
is the first word there in uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. There's basically synonyms. They're words that mean the same thing. And so we don't need to really spend time, well, what's covet and what's desire? They mean the same thing. So if you cared to and wanted to spend some time comparing the two, uh, those are just three differences you can see. The inclusion of field, the switching around of wife and house, and the different words that are used there. So, let's walk through the verse. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, or we could say more generally spouse. This is obvious, right? You have a spouse, your neighbor has a spouse, your neighbor's spouse is not yours, and your spouse is not your neighbor's, so don't covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, or his female servant. His ox, ox most likely used for his agricultural needs, his farming, his donkey, as Pastor mentioned, how he travels around. It's his light truck, uh, if you will, his Ford Ranger, um, or anything that is your neighbor's. So, just in case you want to come up with some other thing, or anything that is your neighbor's, covers everything else. Anything else that belongs to your neighbor, you shall not covet, you shall not desire those things. Well, that's good. But what does covet mean? <laughs> because that's what hinges this all on. We, we might have an idea about covet. Why well, shouldn't want things, right? And so the remedy that we think for that is I just, we're just going to sell everything because that's what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. So we should just sell everything. And then, then I won't want anything anymore. Really? How, if you've tried that, how's that working? Because I've seen people who have nothing who really covet things, really desire things. Did a little bit of homeless ministry for a few years, uh, years ago, and I, I, one thing I noticed very early on was every guy had a little plastic bag, and it was a Walmart kind of bag, those kind of plastic bags. And it was full of stuff, but you could never see what it was, and they would grip onto those things and not leave them sit around and I don't even know what was in there, if it was their stuff that they carry around during the day, food, who knows. But they would, that's pretty much all most of them had, and they would be willing to fight you to the death if you touched their bag. And so whatever was in there, they desired. And so they had nothing else, but they had that, and so don't touch that. And so I'm, I've, for me, that helped me see it doesn't matter whether you have a lot or have nothing, you still covet, you still desire. So it's not just a means of, let's just get rid of stuff, and then somehow I won't covet anymore. That you're, you're, you're treating the wrong symptom. Um, you're not getting to the, the core of the issue. So that can't be the solution. But what does it mean? There's various ways that this word is used, and the Hebrew word, if you care, is hamad. Got to get that little phlegm thing going on there, to, to say the word, C-H-A-M-A-D, Hamad. And uh, one interesting trail to follow with this, and this is going to help you in thinking about what it means, just turn over two chapters to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, and verse 25, he's going through, the Lord is going through and talking about, uh, through Moses to the people, uh, basically, what's going to happen 
uh, in the future and how they are to deal with what will happen, and particularly in including various nations around them as they begin to take them over and inhabit and inherit the land that they were promised by the Lord. Verse 25 says this, The carved images of their gods, that is, other nations, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet, same word, the the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Two things going on here. Number one, there's the other gods, and they're just statues, little idols, whatever, but we find that they're made by either silver, or made of, rather, silver or gold. And so the first problem is, don't go after other gods. You've got to burn them with fire because you don't want yourself, the, the Lord does not want them to be tripped up in idol worship. But the second part of it is, don't covet the silver or gold that is on them. So don't say, well, we can melt them down and then get the silver and gold and it doesn't matter anymore. It was an idol, but now, now look at all the silver and gold we have. No, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. What's an abomination? Silver and gold? No, Idols are an abomination to the Lord your God. And so you can't try to, uh, what the Lord is saying is you can't say, well, just because I've melted it down is what the Lord is saying. Just because you've melted it down and turned it into something else, and now it's, uh, it's a thing of wealth, it doesn't take away the fact that this used to be a idol of another nation. And so there's a clear warning. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves. Now, if you know the story of Achan and Joshua, turn over to Joshua chapter 7. Keep that command in your minds. You shall not covet the silver or gold or it will become a snare to you. It's an abomination to the Lord. If you know the story of Achan, he basically does what the Lord says not to do. And I don't have time to go through the whole story, but let me jump in. That He has taken it from uh, another nation. He's done exactly what the Lord said not to do. And he took it in and he hid it in, and with his tent. And the result is the Lord is now judging uh, the people because this has taken place inside the camp and it needs to get purged from outside of the camp. They need to find out who did it. Verse 19 of Joshua 7. This is bringing Achan before Joshua and beginning to understand what happened. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. Same word, coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, to be sure, these are not the idols that belong to the other nations, but they are nevertheless silver and gold, things that they were, he was not to take from another nation, all wrapped up in and amongst the other nation. What the Lord specifically told, him not, told the people not to do. And what... what sent me on this trail is, number one, the word covet is used. The same word is used in both verses. But it's also uh, all tied up with this idea of silver and gold, stuff, wealth, right? Well, let's take that all the way to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. 
And you're wondering, what does this have to do with Psalm 19? I wondered the same thing till I got here. Psalm 19 and verse, we'll start in verse 9. Verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 19, uh, very similar to Psalm 119, uh, goes through these various ways in which it talks about the law of the Lord, talks about God's word as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, right? All these things that have to do with the Lord and his word uh, and their various attributes. And verse 9 is ending this little uh, few-verse explanation of this. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired. That's the same word for covet. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So this was one of those moments where you go through and you're studying and you go, holy cow, that's interesting. How can you covet in a good way? And how can the Lord tell me to covet his word in a good way? And notice the context. More to be desired are they than gold. Basically, more to be coveted are they, that is my words, more to be coveted are they than gold. Well, it's interesting that he says gold, even much fine gold. And what the, what the Lord is doing through this psalm in many ways is tying a bow on a sort of path that has taken place where the people, he gave the clear command, do not take their idols and, uh, and don't covet their silver and gold. It will become a snare to you. Achan does that. He takes some of their gold and silver into his camp. It becomes a problem for the entire nation. Judgment takes place for Achan. And then all the way to Psalm 19, in an instruction for worship for the Israelites, more to be desired are they, that is, the rules of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the law of the Lord. In other words, this is God saying, when I told you not to do that, you should covet and desire what I told you to not do more than what I told you not to take. Does that make sense? He's saying, what, the way in which I have called you to obedience and this command I gave you not to take these things, you should covet that. That commandment, because it's good and it's righteous and it's holy, that uh, Paul says in Romans 7, the law is good and righteous and holy. You should covet what I commanded you not to do more than the thing that you now covet, which I told you not to do. And so, uh, for me, as I'm studying this, I thought, okay, there's good and bad sides to this word. There's positive and negative sides to this word. There's a way in which I can... Hamad in a good way. And there's ways in which I can do it in a bad way. Right? And we normally associate that with all the negative because normally it's talked about that. But this is a clear command from the Lord. More to be desired and literally more to be coveted are they than gold. And so there's a way in which we can begin to desire the right things. We can begin to covet, if you will. I don't like to use that word because it's usually associated with negative, but just for the sake of... I don't want to keep saying chamad because I need more water to keep saying that. Um, more to be desired are they than gold. There is a way in which we can desire and covet, if you will, the right things. And even so, just those three verses begin to help us see a picture of the way in which we are to understand this command of do not covet. Let's look at one other place. where uh, it could, Because remember, in Psalm 19, this is God saying, to covet something that's good. 
have to think about that. Because in other places, he says, do not covet, right? But in this place, he's saying to desire to covet something that is good. What about when God himself covets something? Psalm 68. Psalm 68. And verse 16. Just talking about, we don't have time to get all of the context of the psalm, but in particular where we're going to jump in is talking about uh, God and the way in which he looks at Mount Zion, the way in which he looks at that particular place. Verse 16, Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired, God coveted for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. God desired, coveted, the place in which he will dwell forever. Mount Zion is the point, is what's being talked about here. So even God can do this, and he, but he always does things that are righteous. He always does things in the right way. He always does things in the most pure and clean way, holy way. And God has a sense of being able to desire something in a pure and right and holy way. And that's where, that's, that becomes our standard. That's what Pastor David is talking about in the focus hour right now. But our standard for how we judge things and how we are to understand things becomes God himself. God is our standard for how we are to understand what it means to covet or to not covet or to desire the right things or desire the wrong things. So even God is able to do that. There's other places where this word is used positively. And let me turn to... Uh, a familiar one, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. You know this chapter, perhaps. It's the basically Isaiah's gospel, talking about Christ himself. A prophecy many hundreds of years before Christ came, but yet all of these things perfectly walking through the ways in which the Lord Jesus himself Uh, went through his ministry and ultimately went to the cross, which we have sung about quite a bit this morning. Uh, Isaiah 53 and verse 2, talking about Jesus here. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and had no beauty that we should desire him, covet him. Now this is used in in a way in which it's describing Jesus and his how he looked, that he didn't look like most of the movies and paintings and so on that we see. He looked like a Middle Eastern man, and that he was not this shiny uh, Anglo-American, blue-eye, long blonde hair, you know, strapping guy, right? He looked like a Middle Eastern man, and he had no beauty that we should desire him, that we should covet him, that we should desire him in a way in which, from a worldly perspective. But if you know Jesus, you know that he has so much beauty and so much majesty that we should greatly desire him. And, that, and, and the point of this is, is that there is a positive side to how in which we might be able to desire the Lord himself, not just the things that he gives and the things that he's made and the things that he has provided for us, but the Lord himself. So I wanted to start on a positive side. There are 
positive ways to understand this idea of desire. And we often think about desire, even just think about that word, desire. In your mind, immediately, you think about that word. It probably brings up all kinds of negative connotations. Desire, I shouldn't desire something. I shouldn't be full of desire. I shouldn't have a desire for things, right? But, in fact, yes, that's true. But the Lord in his word is telling us that there is right things to desire, that there is right ways to desire things from a pure standpoint, because he himself is able to desire things from a pure standpoint, and he says as much back, in, as we read in Psalm 68. Now, what about all the negatives? We've already looked at uh, that sort of this, that, that line of starting in Deuteronomy 7 with the command about silver and gold, Achan himself doing that, and then landing in Psalm 19. But what about other negative examples? There's one sense in which uh, coveting is oftentimes uh, associated with the rest of the, of the other commandments. And so sometimes you can covet things that ends up in stealing. Because coveting has a sense of leading you towards action. Oftentimes when you really, really want something, you don't just sit and really, really want something. You eventually get it, right? If you want it bad enough, you're going to figure out some way to do it. And oftentimes that leaves us in some kind of you know, regret for the credit card debt we're in or whatever other silly uh, decision we make uh, to go after something that we really want. Sometimes it's not buying something. Sometimes it's going after something that we should not want, like some other type of sin, like sexual morality, like stealing something that isn't ours. I really want it. I've got to have it. Well, it's oftentimes associated with stealing, coveting is. And uh, a good example of this is Exodus, Exodus chapter 34. And this, is, this particular example is spelled out in a sort of a different way that you might expect, but you'll see what I mean here, Exodus chapter 34. This is the Lord saying the kind of protection that he will offer and provide for his people once they begin to inherit the land. Exodus 34 and verse 24. God speaking to his people, and he says this, For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no one shall covet your land. When you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. What he's talking about is when they leave and go up to to worship, and they leave their land, and so their land is kind of left vulnerable, he says, no one will covet your land. Now, that doesn't not mean that your land's going to be kind of like the field down the street that's like nobody really wants, and I'm going to make it look so ugly that nobody's going to want it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when you leave and you go to worship me, because the preceding verses, verse, or at least verse 22, you shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Uh, Verse 23, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord, the God of Israel. What he's saying is when that happens, no one shall covet your land. Now, he can't mean just no one's going to want it. He means that no one's going to covet it to the point where they're going to come and take it. right? And so there's there's a clear line drawn from coveting all the way to action. And so, in a, in a sense, oftentimes coveting is associated with stealing. That's what I mean. You can't just break one commandment. Oftentimes, if you're stealing something, you probably coveted it, and you probably have some false god in your mind, and you've probably broken, perhaps not, if not a few, but maybe all of them, because they're all interconnected, because it all deals with our hearts, and that's coveting gets after that most clearly. 
So coveting often has a connection to stealing. It also has a clear connection to idolatry. Uh, The prophet Isaiah has a lot to say about idolatry, but he has a lot to say about coveting associated with that as well. One example is um, chapter 44. Chapter 44 and verse 9. He is talking about the, uh, basically the insanity of idolatry, the foolishness of idolatry. We've already talked about idolatry, that it's not just about the thing or having an idol. You know, so we're not free and clear of idolatry if we don't have some little statue of Buddha in our house. We could have little idol. All these wonderful little children that were up here, they could be our idols. I've said it before, you might have wonderful children, but they make terrible gods. And so, so the way in which we think about idolatry is not necessarily, well, i got this little statue, or I don't, and so I'm either guilty or I'm not. No, we can make things idols very quickly. So don't think about idols in terms of, well, I don't have any statues, so I'm good. In this context, that's what it's talking about, but it's also getting to the heart of the issue. And verse 9 says this, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Delight, that's covet. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. All who fashion idols are nothing. In other words, if you make an idol, you're nothing. Not only is the idol nothing, but if you make an idol, you're nothing. Why? Because elsewhere the word tells us that we become like what we worship. And the things they delight in do not profit. And so there's a connection there between coveting and idolatry. Coveting something of an idol, delighting in something that is, not, that is nothing. I delight in, to delight in a false god, God is saying, is to delight in nothing. There's nothing there. There's no substance. To worship and delight in something that you have put in a place as God, whether it be some other religion that says, this is God, no, this is God, not this, not the Christian God, this is God. Not only is that nothing, there's nothing there, But secondarily, if you put something in the place of God, maybe unbeknownst to you or you don't know suddenly how you, you, you got to this point, but I think I have some idols in my life. And usually you can tell your idols when somebody starts to press or they get threatened to be taken away. And if you take them away, then suddenly you realize that could be an idol for me. And God says, the things they delight in do not profit. We think they do. They promise that they will, but they don't. And so coveting has a very close connection to idolatry. If you are an idol worshiper, if you are an idolater, you very likely are coveting as well, if not doing more than that. So coveting has a lot to do with idolatry. There's a lot of other places I could go, but for the sake of time, I won't. So I was in a conversation this week with a friend, and we were just chatting about this. And um, he's always got some kind of little clever one-liner for everything. And uh, he was quoting somebody else, and he told me this. Maybe you've heard this before. The heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. The heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. Coveting, it's a great way to talk about coveting. Because... It begins in our hearts. It begins with a, 
a uh, lack of satisfaction in whatever it is that we have and whoever it is that we are, whatever it is that God has given us, whomever it is that God has placed in our lives. And, you know, I, I, I hammer on this sometimes, and I'm, I'm not trying to make this a whipping boy, but um, uh, social media is like a covetous factory because you can present... You know this. You know this line. You can say this better than I can, probably. You can present a whole picture of how wonderful everything is for you because it's edited and curated and filtered with a few emojis and a nice little description that everybody likes, and that's so cute. And then they say, I hate you because I wish I had that. There should be a coveting button as well next to like or dislike. There should be, I'm coveting. I'm breaking the Tenth Commandment. And maybe, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on this, but maybe instead, of, and, and this is where we think about, am I making my brother or sister stumble? So let's just think about spouses. So every post that we say how absolutely wonderful our husband or wife is, to tell the world about that, maybe just tell your husband or wife how wonderful he or she is. Because maybe somebody else is in the midst of just a battle at home, and their marriage is struggling, and they see that and they think, I wish you were like that. And then you didn't mean for that to happen. You're just trying to say how much you love your husband or wife. But maybe you've begun a, a path for someone in their minds to say, I wish my husband did the dishes. I wish my wife cooked like that. And we go, oh, that's cute. But those are the kinds of things that lead us down a path and brothers and sisters down a path of ugly, ugly heart issues and thinking. Or look how, look how great it is that they're all together. Look how great it is that they're family. They're having this wonderful time together. Or look at the way in which they talk about this. Or look at their house. Or look at, look at that nice car they have. And we just go through and break the 10th commandment, break the 10th commandment, break the 10th commandment. And that doesn't mean, well, I'll just get off social media and then I won't covet anymore. Yes, you will. Because your heart hasn't changed. I'm just simply suggesting that it is a one avenue for us now. There wasn't any Instagram then. They just stood and looked at each other's houses and said, I want that. Right? I'm just simply saying it's an avenue. And it's an extension of ourselves. And so it cannot be this alternate world where the rules and common sense and the laws of God don't exist. Well, well, I'm not coveting face-to-face, but I'm coveting when I see this on my screen. And I'm passively, passively, aggressively liking it. And really just saying, I wish I had that. The issue, part of the issue is an issue of the heart. I think it's a wise saying. And it helps us with coveting because it's, you know your hearts. You know how your heart is. You don't know it as well as the Lord knows it, but you know it. You know where you're led to. You know where your desires go. You know when you're tripped up by something and you see this or that and you have your particular interests and your particular things that you're, you enjoy. And you know when that can go too far. You know when that can lead you astray. And some of you could testify to times when that coveting has led you to all kinds of action, hasn't it? Your desires don't just stop at desires. They lead themselves into action. You've stolen. 
You have defrauded your brother in sexual morality. You have done all kinds of other things. Bore false witness. You've, right, on and on and on. Committed idolatry. Or you've done all of them together. And so coveting is this thing that I can't look you in the eye and say, I think you're coveting that, unless you tell me that you are. So coveting becomes this very private thing that we can do and harbor in our hearts and that the Lord himself can and will and does work on in and amongst us as conviction comes, as we recognize this, this whole discontentment that is breeding in my heart about this, that, or the other is ugly, and it's leading me down a bad path, and I cannot allow this to continue. That wasn't your idea. That was the Lord. That was the Holy Spirit showing you that what you're doing, where you're allowing yourself to go, is not right, and it doesn't lead you to a good conclusion. And so heart issues and all of these things become very finicky things, and we can pretend like they're not there. We can avoid them. Um, And sometimes if you have the means to get all the things that you desire, you often don't know that you're coveting as much. Because you never allow the coveting to last very long. Because let's just get that, because we can. And that's the danger of having more means to be able to get the things that you covet. And you might think, well, I don't struggle with coveting. Well, wait a minute. If you allowed a little bit more time, a little grass to grow on that desire, would you recognize a little more clearly that actually you are a covetous person? You just satisfy it so easily because you have the means to do so. Other people have to sit and brood and steam on it, and it kind of festers because they can't get that unless they steal it, get it dishonestly, or whatever else, right? doesn't mean there's anything wrong with having the means of getting it. It just means that's an extra added layer for you that other brothers and sisters don't have. And so don't go too quickly to, well, I don't covet anything. Well, Allow the Lord and his word to do a little bit of searching, because he will. But submit yourself to that and discover how it is that your heart leads you. What's behind? What's behind everything that you go after and do and purchase and pursue? And what's, what's behind all that? What's, what's driving you to do that? Why do you want to live there? Why do you want that. Why do you want to look like that? Why do you want your life to look this way? Why? It's those questions that our kids ask when they're little, right? That can drive us crazy, but we should be asking ourselves those questions. Why? What's, what's behind that? Why am I... What's leading me to this? Wonderful thing about the Lord is that He is gracious, patient, merciful, and He knows our hearts far better than we do. And in the same conversation with a friend this week, he reminded me he's at, at his church he is preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark's Gospel, in his eyewitness account, really given through most likely the Apostle Peter, Mark's Gospel, he records the first thing that Jesus says in Mark's Gospel. The first thing that Jesus says in Mark's Gospel is this. The time is fulfilled, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he said it this way. The first thing that the Lord Jesus says in Mark's gospel that's recorded is, You are wrong. 
Change your way of thinking. And believe in me. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. What an offensive thing in our time and day, right? In any time and day, but especially now. We hate to be told we're wrong. But you're wrong in how you think about everything. That's why he says repent. Everything you think about is wrong. (laughs) How you think about it, aside from the Lord, aside from the Spirit, aside from submission to his word, left to your own devices, you're wrong. Repent and believe in the gospel. And, of course, behind the gospel, behind and in and with that, Jesus is on his way to the cross in the gospel account there. He's on his way to the cross. Everything that we've sung about this morning, we've said in several different songs, if you've caught it, lead me to the cross, take me to the cross. And the cross is where the Lord paid for and took care of all of our covetous hearts. The penalty that is due us for the way in which we desire, wrongly desire, and go after other things was all paid for, all taken care of on the cross. Such that the Lord comes to us now, comes to every one of you now, and says, repent and believe in the gospel. And your response to that can't just be, well, I'll get back with you on that. Your response to that is immediate. When you talk to somebody, when you have a conversation with somebody, what if they told you something and then you just (laughs) didn't say anything else and just walked away? How bizarre would that be? And every time the Lord confronts you with that truth about repent and believe in the gospel, and you kind of just go, step away because it feels awkward and uncomfortable and you don't want to answer. The point is, the Lord is calling for a response. And that doesn't have to be some kind of production. It simply has to be the Lord of the universe is calling you to say, I have made provision for everything that you have done wrong. I have paid for all of your sins because they have accumulated to quite a bit. Just like everybody else. I've paid for your sins through my son on the cross. Repent. Stop. Change your mind. Realize that you're wrong. Agree with me because I'm right. And believe in the gospel. And that is a wonderful salve for our covetous hearts. But how do we keep going then, once we've done that? How do we keep going to deal with this sense of coveting that continues to roar in our hearts? Well, it starts at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we can see this played out for us clearly here. This is helpful for you if you don't yet know the Lord, if you're just kind of still processing through all this Christianity stuff. But this is helpful for you as well if you are a Christian. The offer still stands, the, 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 the statement still stands out to you. Repent and believe in the gospel. What do I do after that? How do I continue to work on my heart after that? Well, we have to understand what's going on in the background. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord is creating everything. Simply through his voice, simply through speaking. In verse 9, we read this. And out of the ground the Lord, made, Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Literally, covetous to the sight. And good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, if you know the timeline that's happened here, the wheels haven't fallen off yet. Sin has not yet entered. Chapter 3 hasn't yet taken place. 
The Lord has cre- is creating everything, and we're reading an account of the Lord making everything. And it says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every, every tree, every tree that is pleasant to the sight, that is covetous to the sight, that is good. And he, later he says, uh, uh, as he walks back through, chapter 1 tells us this, everything that he made, and he said it was good. Everything's good. Pleasant to the sight. This is pure and right. It is truly, purely, holy, pleasant to the sight. It's good. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, because it's pleasant to the sight and good for food. We already know that. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a good, right limitation here given by the Lord to Adam. A good limitation. Because the Lord tells him the truth. The day, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the Lord is protecting Adam by saying, don't eat it. He's not keeping something from him. He's already given him every tree. That is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He's saying, don't eat that. Because when you do, you will die. And the Lord is protecting him, giving him a good limitation. Well, we know what takes place, right? Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, the serpent comes questioning to Eve. We already know he's more crafty than any other beast the Lord God had made. So this isn't going to go well. If you're completely unfamiliar with this story, you can just follow the narrative of what's happening. Whoever this is, this isn't going to go well because he's coming in with a bad motive. And he comes in asking, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Well, that's not what he said. So he has an intent to deceive already. He has an intent to get around the truth. But the woman answers rightly, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She rightly, through her husband, knows What's true? What's right? The good limitation that God set. Yes, we have every tree. We can eat of it. What are you talking about? Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent inserts an answer, specifically refuting, number one, God's command and the result That God said, you will not surely die. In other words, he's saying, God's limitation for you was not good. He has something bad behind his limitation. This limitation for you is not good. He's trying to keep something from you. He's keeping you away from that good thing. You're not going to die. When you eat it, you'll be just like him. That's what he's afraid of. And he's not talking about just, the serpent is not just trying to say, What God commanded is not good. He's subsequently trying to say God is not good. And inserting a seed of doubt into Eve's mind. Challenging what God specifically says is good and the right and true result that will happen from that particular 
command. Verse 6. Notice the words here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Remember, it's pleasant to the sight. Every tree is pleasant to the sight and good for, for, for food. Chapter 2, verse 9. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight, that it was covetous to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you notice? And then look, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Do you notice the change and it's all the, the sight words, not sight words, but talking about seeing, eyes, saw. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, every tree is pleasant to the sight. That's good. It's covetous to the sight. It's good. Everything is good. When they see it, I desire that, and it's good for me, and I should eat it. And there's this one good limitation that the Lord gave to them. But he's come in, the serpent has come in and said, not only is God's limitation not good, he is not good, and let me tell you a better path. And then the woman sees everything differently. And that's exactly what happens to us when we start to believe lies about good things. Either God's good command or God himself or the things that God made. We begin to see them in new ways that are not right and true. And that's exactly what happens to us in coveting. We see things that are good. But we can't have them. They're not ours. And we shouldn't want them because they're not ours. Because God told us that they're not ours and we shouldn't desire them. We shouldn't go after them. We shouldn't let that harbor in our hearts. And what God said to us in his command was good because God himself is good. That's the truth. But when we're deceived and led astray, we begin to think that, well, that, I, I, I deserve that. I should have that. Why, why did God say I can't have that? That's, that? I don't know. That's a good command for me. And If he's not giving good commands, then God's not very good. I don't need to listen to him. And that's exactly the path. Satan enjoys deceiving people to see things that God says or makes as not good. He wants you to believe that God is not good. The simplest prayer you learn when you're little, God is good, God is great. Right? Great prayer to learn because it's true. But that's exactly where God wants to get after you. Or uh, Satan wants to get after you. He wants you to think that God is not good. Which isn't true. If he can't do that, if Satan can't do that, he'll likely try to make you dissatisfied with the good things that God has given you. And he'll make you want things that God has not given you. Or make you want things that God has given to someone else. And if he doesn't do either of those things, he'll distort your view of good things. Again, note the change of Eve. The woman saw that the tree was good. The tree that God said, do not eat of it, because when you do, you will die. The woman saw it completely differently now. It was a delight. It was covetous to her eyes. Now, if you compare chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 6, you, can, you know, by, based on the context, what's different about pleasant to the sight and delight to the eyes. Pleasant to the sight is what God created. It's good. It is pleasant to the sight. It's good for food. Coming through that is that command. But if you understand, if you get to the point of saying it's a delight to the eyes and you're running after it, you've been deceived. You've been lied to and you've believed it. And you're now running in a direction, running in a path that is harmful to your soul. 
Paul, I don't have time to do this, and I would just commend you to read Romans chapter 7. But Paul, in Romans chapter 7, this is where I'll land. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, says this about this command, do not covet. Basically, he says, I didn't know what it was to covet until I saw the command. In other words, Paul is saying, I didn't have the, the, the framework in my mind to understand what coveting was. But when I saw in Romans 7, verse 7, um, he says this, When I saw that the law had said, you shall not covet, then I understood what coveting was. But verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul sets up sin as almost this thing in us. Because we can't be too quick to blame everything on the devil. Because we're perfectly capable of screwing everything up on our own. Our sinful natures within us has, as Paul describes it, read Romans 7. Read how Paul talks about sin in Romans 7. He almost makes it like this thing. Because it is this thing, this nature, this part of us that runs after things that are not good for us. And we begin to believe that the lie is the truth. And Paul says that the law comes to us and shows us, you shall not covet. But the law itself does not have the power and was not intended to have the power to make us listen to it. But Jesus has paid for, as I already said, he's paid for our covetous hearts. He has given us now, if through faith in Christ, he has given us his spirit so that we might begin to start desiring the very things that the Lord wants us to desire, the very thing that God himself desires. And that we can look at the commandment and obey it in a way and understand its true nature, that it's good for us, it's right for us, it is meant for our good, it's meant to produce something good in us. And it all comes back to this question of, what should we desire? What are the right things that we should desire? The Lord tells us in various places in, in his word that he has provided everything for us. Everything that we could possibly need, want, so on. And we can think about material things. I've got food, I've got a house, I've got clothing, so on and so forth. That's not necessarily all that he's talking about. We sung it. All I have is Christ. Brian testified to that. If you lost everything else, every other material thing, every other comfort. If Job, what happened to Job, happened to you? Do you have anything left? And if you can't answer that question with any kind of assurance, then you need to do business with the Lord. Because you can sing that, and it's emotional, and it's good, and yes. But is that true? Is all you have Christ? Because if it's not true, then it's time to do business with that. It's time to deal with that. Because God is, in Second Peter, the, the Lord tells us through the Apostle Peter, He has provided everything for us, for our lives, for our Christian lives, and for godliness, for growing. And he's done that all in Christ. So what should we desire? We should desire more of God, more of Christ himself, more of him. And the wonderful thing about that is he does not give us command like, hey, you need to desire me, you need to desire the things I desire. And then he just waits for us to do it. No, he knows that we can't do it. He provides for the fact that we cannot do it. And then he enables us to do it. So God is not some sort of taskmaster who is just calling us to do obedient things and then is just grumpy with us because we can't do them. No, he has a clear 
good standard that he upholds. He calls us to it, knows that we can't achieve it, achieves it for us through his son, through, the death and, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, calls us to repent and believe in the gospel, gives us his spirit so that we might begin to desire the things that he calls us to in his standard. We couldn't think of this ourselves. But God did. He provided this for you, for us. And so if you don't know the Lord this morning... You can sit and think about, boy, I I think I do sometimes get a little bit too wrapped up in the things that I want or things that I don't have and go after those things. But don't leave here thinking, just stop wanting things. Leave here knowing that the God of the universe who created you with a mere word calls you to want him, calls you to desire him, and has provided for you a way in which you can do that setting aside all of your sin, paying for that on his son Jesus Christ so that you might have life and true life and enjoyment and pleasure and happiness and obedience in and through a life with him. But if Christians, if you feel like some conviction about, boy, I think I'm letting myself go off into covetousness here, understand what is happening, the battle that is happening that is raging for your mind and soul, that you have an enemy who longs to deceive you and destroy you, and he is actively working to do that all the time. And so are you believing the truth or are you believing the lie? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to meditate on your word, to understand what you've said. I pray that your spirit would give clarity to those who are searching through this and trying to understand their own hearts. Lord, for those that don't know you this morning, I pray that they would hear above all else that you love them, that you've sought after them, and that you've provided a way back to you through your Son. I pray that they would call out to you in faith and trust you. Lord, for those of us who do know you, This morning, I pray that we would understand that you are enough. That in the end of the day, if everything else is gone and all we have is Christ, we have everything. Lord, may that not just be a platitude, a nice word, a nice little phrase that we say, but may that be true of our hearts, of our deepest desires. May we desire above all other things you and you alone. And whatever that means for how we structure and order our lives, may we be obedient to what you call us to. Lord, we ask all of this and entrust all of this to you in Jesus' name.